The following message is by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Content Developer and Global Trainer with Hands to the Plow Ministries. You can find more from Dr. DeRoshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. I welcome you back to the second half of our lecture. Matthew 12, 45 says, Then the spirit that departs from one man goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Demonization. I want to open now considering the characteristics of the demonized as they're disclosed to us in Scripture. Scripture associates a number of contexts, conditions, and capacities with the demonized. Because not all these characteristics are evident in every case, I think that we should see all of this as merely exemplary and not restrictive. That is, these are just some examples in Scripture of how demonized people act or what the problems are associated with them, and there could be more that are not even testified to in the biblical text itself. You can see a list, a catalog in figure two on your handout. With respect to the conditions, some demonic assaults can be more severe, especially where multiple demons are involved. Furthermore, Scripture does not portray every demonized person as raving mad or struggling with self-harm. Those are only exemplary of how the demons work. It doesn't happen in every case. Some appear to only experience physical oppression, likely accompanied by deep discouragement, Luke 13. Others are fully aware and strategically sinful, standing against Christ like Judas. While all of the various characteristics are results of demonic influence, the fact that Scripture lists the casting away of demons alongside other forms of healing, so there's healing and the casting away of demons. What that suggests is that not every physical or mental illness or disorder is a result of demonization. Some of them are, but not all of them are. Consider how we read what we read here in Luke 7. In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. The disease and the plague appears to be different than the evil spirit, and yet he healed them all. And even on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So I say again, not every mental or physical illness or disorder is a result of demonization. At times, there may even be a combination of issues that are both physical and spiritual. Thus, proper pastoral and medical care demands careful prayerful assessment. 
even when working with those who Paul calls in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as having the gift of distinguishing spirits. We need to be cautious and biblical so as to determine the, price na- the precise nature of certain problems. So let's consider the list. So contexts where we find demonized people in the Bible. Luke 8, homelessness. Mark 5, people who are drawn to contexts of death, like tombs. The demonized can hang out there. Conditions. A mute man, he can't talk, but when Jesus shows up, he begins to speak. A blind man, unable to physically see, he meets Jesus and God gives him sight. The deaf are demonized. The disabled, resulting in a bent-over posture, Jesus shows up and the posture is straightened. All those are physical conditions. How about mental conditions? A person running around mad in the presence of many, naked. When Jesus shows up, he's clothed. Crying out or raving, Jesus shows up. All of a sudden, he's in his right mind. People who are cutting themselves or being thrown into fire or water in order to hurt themselves, that's associated with demonization. Evil, rebellious intent in the soul, associated with Judas. All these are mental conditions related to demonization. Then you can have conditions that seem to be a blend of mental and physical, like the being thrown down to the ground, rolling all around, convulsing, foaming at the mouth, grinding at the teeth, becoming rigid. Mark 1, 9, Luke 4, just examples. How about the capacities of the demonized? The devil is strong. And when he works in a person in this higher level of torment and oppression, they can become fiercely strong, such that one man with a demon could overcome the seven sons of Sceva. And they fled naked and wounded extreme strength, or the demoniac filled with a legion of demons able to break the chains, extreme strength, and yet Jesus is stronger. Another capacity of the demonized, they are able to practice divination to do fortune-telling. When Jesus shows up through Paul, for example, no longer able. They're able to do evil things, like Judas, able to do evil against the very Son of God. So now we come to a question many of you have, demonization in the Christian. Can a Christian be demonized? 
Now let me say first that I believe there's at least three reasons why a Christian should expect to encounter those who are demonized, tormented by demons, and you need to be equipped to minister to them. Three reasons why we should expect to encounter such people. Number one, in this church age, there are two truths that stand in tension, both of them witnessed to in Revelation 12. On the one hand, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. And Christians have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. That's one side. But then here's the other side. The devil, that is the accuser, has been thrown down to the earth. And what does he do? He comes in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And so what does he do? He seeks to make war on the saints. So we should expect to encounter such war. Second reason we should expect to encounter those who are demonized. Scripture anticipates the release of captives to be a primary part of the Messiah's ministry. Luke 4.18. And the Gospels which were written after Christ's resurrection and these Gospels that are written for the churches draw great attention to Christ's freeing of the demonized. And third, in the book of Acts, Luke stresses, and in the gospel, Luke stresses how the rest of the disciples were equipped for the same task that Jesus was engaging in, war. Luke 9 and Luke 10, which we will look at more carefully, Consider these texts. Luke 9, first to the twelve apostles. Jesus calls the twelve together, and He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. But I am not an apostle, and you are not an apostle of this sort. You may be sent, but you're sent by churches. You're not sent by the resurrection of Jesus. But it's not only the apostles whom Jesus empowered to encounter and confront and overcome demons. Luke 10, the 72, bigger than the apostles, more. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, not in my power, but by his strength. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you, not just the 12, all the 72. I have given all of you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the kingdom of heaven. In the book of Acts, 
We see it recalling Jesus' deliverance ministry, Acts 10, and it also highlights how God was using the apostles to free the demonized. Acts 5, Acts 19, Jesus' declaration that He has given His disciples all authority over all the power of the enemy, Luke 10. That parallels His other affirmation that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. These statements are striking. They demand God's help for us to believe. Because we see darkness and it is real. And to have the belief that Jesus is able to overcome the demonized brokenness. When Jesus asserts that nothing shall hurt you, Did you see that? Nothing shall hurt you. That does not conflict with his earlier statement, many of you they will kill, but not one hair of your head will perish. When he says not nothing shall hurt you, he's talking about eternity. Nothing can thwart the love of God that will carry you into the next age. Scripture teaches that the devil schemes against both believers and non-believers, Ephesians 6. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful against his flaming darts that could pierce our souls. The devil can deeply wound all who fail to defend themselves and offensively resist by means of the armor of God, even Christians. The devil's goal in all frustration and deception or temptation is to generate internal compromise. And at times, the devil even elevates his scheming to the point of torment and deep oppression, even against Christ's followers. For example, let's consider Luke 13. I have a whole bunch of examples that I believe point to demonization. I did not say possession. But intensified oppression against Christians, followers of Jesus. Let's consider some examples. Luke 13. Luke 13, 11 through 16 speaks of Jesus' healing a devout woman whom he calls a daughter of Abraham. And in Luke, that stands against those whose father was the devil and not Abraham. Luke chapter 3. When Zacchaeus embraces Jesus, Jesus says, you are a son of Abraham. It seems to be a statement of true faith. So, Jesus calls this woman a daughter of Abraham, a category for Luke that appears to mean that she was saved. She had, we're told, a disabling spirit for 18 years, and Satan, we're told, had bound her. Nevertheless, after Jesus made her straight, she glorified God. No other clear signs of demonization are present in the text. 
But a demon still appears to have been causing her extended and extensive battle. Similarly, let's consider Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul identified, a thorn in the flesh was given me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Is it Satan's desire to keep you and me from being proud? So there is a grander power over top, and Paul knows it. God's in charge. God has allowed me to suffer. God willed that Paul would suffer so that he would not trust in himself, but in God. When he writes 2 Corinthians, he has already been saved for 20 years. How many of you have been saved for 20 years? 20 years since Paul met the resurrected Christ on the, va- on the road to Damascus. 20 years, this Paul has already written 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Galatians, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and yet he says... God allowed Satan to torment me so that I would not become proud. We don't know what this thorn was, but it was likely associated in some way with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, as he says in 1 Corinthians 12.10. The language is neither... The language in in neither 12.7 or 12.10 demands an internal demonic presence in Paul. I don't see that in the text. Nevertheless, both of them may still legitimately fall within the context of demonization. This is a higher level of torment than he had been experiencing. He'd cried out to God, free me from this, and God wouldn't let him go. Three times he prayed, and God continued to let the Spirit oppress him so that he would not trust in himself, so that in his weakness, God would be displayed as powerful. In Paul's case, he resisted the devil, resulting not in relief from his oppression, but in God's use of Paul's pain as a means for keeping him from becoming conceited. Did the devil flee? Oh yes, the devil fled because Paul did not get succumbed to the temptation. He was strong and he wasn't proud. He was humble, depending on God. Three times Paul pleaded with the Lord to take the oppression away, but God chose instead to grant the apostles special persevering grace amidst his suffering so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, Paul says. Now, along with those texts just mentioned, there are at least three other texts that indicate Christians may be demonized, Acts 5 and Acts 19. Let's consider the first text in Acts 5. Acts 5 opens by continuing a narrative that grows out of the statement in Acts 4.32 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The believers were united, it says. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they all had everything in common. 
We're told that a certain Christ follower named Joseph sold a piece, sold a field, and gave the proceeds to the, to the apostles for those in need. Luke then contrasts this Joseph with Ananias and Sapphira. This is a married couple. They were professing believers who had sold property, yet they had retained some of the proceeds, but then they told the apostles, we've given it all. Peter declared, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan filled Ananias' heart. This filling language elsewhere in Acts makes this text suggest that there is indeed an internalized expansion of desire for evil here associated with the devil. Much like we see in the life of Judas, whom the devil entered in order to turn Jesus in to the leaders. It says, the devil put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, John 13. Or think also the way that the Satan incited David to sin in the census. This may also be comparable. The nature of Ananias and Sapphira's sin may not be ex as extreme so as to tag it demonization. I don't know if we should call it demonization, but the language that Acts uses elsewhere would allow for it. While some still question whether Ananias and Sapphira were true believers, Luke clearly associates them with the believing community. Furthermore, we know that Satan can incite true God followers to sin when they let down their guard. Think Peter. Think David. We know that God can punish sinful Christians with premature death. Think about those in 1 Corinthians 11 whom God allowed to go to sleep because they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in vain. This is all like the story of Ananias and Sapphira. As the Jerusalem church continues to grow, we get a new narrative in the gospel, I mean, in, in Acts. This is what Luke tells us in Acts 5, 14. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And then we read that more than every, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Now, the context explicitly details the multiplication of believers. And then it clarifies this statement by noting that among these hordes, some were gathered who brought the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. Like that. 5.16. So it seems to me possible that at least some of the many, many, many of the sick and the broken that were healed of unclean spirits were already Christ followers. Seems very possible in the context. Now, the issue of demonization was clearly broader than Jerusalem. And during Paul's extended ministry in Ephesus, God delivered many. Specifically, right in the context of noting how Paul, 
While stationed in the city, reasoned and persuaded about the kingdom of God among Jews and Greeks from all over Asia. And by noting that there were many disciples, Acts 19, this is what Luke tells us. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Acts 19, 11 and 12. It's likely that at least some of these from whom the spirits departed were already followers of Christ. Because 19.18 says this, Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Now, there's two more texts that some believe support the demonization of true Christians. 2 Corinthians 11.4 and Ephesians 4.27. But I believe only the Ephesians text may point in this direction. Building off Acts 19, which identifies that there were many in Ephesus whom God delivered from demonization, Paul teaches this in Ephesians 4.27, that when we fail as Christians, to resolve anger, we sin. And in turn, when that anger is lodged in our soul, we surrender turf. Or, as it says in the ESV, we, give, we are to give no opportunity. But very literally, it's tapas in Greek. Give no turf to the devil. The NIV says, give no foothold to the evil one by which he can further wound, influence, and scheme. Peter O'Brien, standing against J. Armitage Robinson, notes that supplying Satan a chance to negatively impact doesn't necessarily imply an opportunity for a spirit to enter into a Christian. It doesn't say that. But it does say you can give the devil turf. So what would that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean this text is pointing to that higher level of oppression called demonization. This text may point to that. It may not point to that. But it does suggest that a Christian who allows sin to stay in their life, is giving greater opportunity for demons to attach themselves to us and lead us astray from God and minimize our witness to Jesus in this world. Carl Payne says, What is important to recognize is that demons truly have the ability to connect themselves to Christians. Because unresolved personal sins commonly supply the context for demonic oppression to take place in the lives of the demonized, Paul in this context says, Christians, be imitators of God. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor. In 2 Corinthians 11, this is the other text that some have proposed, talks about Christians being demonized. I don't think it does. Paul speaks of professing believers who do not hesitate to hear the proclamation of another Jesus. They get their ears tickled by false teaching. 
professing believers who, Paul says, receive a different spirit or who accept a different gospel, potentially following the pattern of Eve by letting Satan lead their minds astray from pure devotion to God. However, rather than speaking about demonization and the reception of demonic spirits, the apostle rather appears to be cautioning his hearers to guard themselves from false teaching. False teachers who promised more of the Spirit, more health, more wealth, more ecstatic experiences. If you will but keep the law, if you will but add the stipulations of the old covenant into the new. These false teachers were proclaiming a different portrayal of Jesus, a different portrayal of the Spirit, a different portrayal of the gospel. One that was without suffering in the pattern of Christ. Do not fall into false teaching. Christians should expect to suffer. Paul is not directly addressing the possibility of demonization in that text, I don't believe. Many Christians question whether those following Christ can actually be indwelt by demons. Nevertheless, we have already highlighted how demonization is likely not limited to demonic indwelling. You can be demonized without being indwelt. The devil wants to oppress at high levels even Christians. Demonization includes demonic association that results in elevated external or internal torment. The biblical authors do not apply the verb daimonizomai anywhere to known Christ followers. The verb doesn't show up. But I've already noted how the reality isn't limited to that verb. You can have a spirit. You can be with a spirit. With echoes of Christ's own deliverance ministry in Acts 10, the apostles associate the concept of demonization with the phenomena, uh, th that, that concept with those who indeed are seeking Jesus' help, Luke 13, with those who are called believers, like Ananias and Sapphira. Furthermore, Paul himself, as he rightly pursued the Lord, experienced a very high level of demonic oppression, demonic harassment that could be considered at least a low level of demonization. For 2 Corinthians 12, God warned, warned Israel against worshiping any gods other than Yahweh. He charged Israel never to engage in occult practices. Paul stresses that Christians should neither be participants with demons, 1 Corinthians 10, nor seek fellowship with darkness, 2 Corinthians 6. Nevertheless, Paul bemoans the fact that some professing believers still do these things, forgetting their identity in Jesus. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy 4. In later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Thus Paul asserts, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, 
How can you turn back to the weak and worthless spirits of the world whose slaves you once were? Or Paul in 1 Peter, or Peter in 1 Peter 5, the devil is prowling around like a lion seeking to devour. But as believers, we must resist him. While true believers are protected eternally in Christ, there is still a sphere in this present age wherein Christians can serve sin and can serve the devil. Therefore, pastorally, we need to be a people who, due to past abuses or poor choices or the belief in lies or even like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, even amidst a proper pursuit of God. We need to recognize that professing Christians can experience demonic torment that at times manifests characteristics that we find in that figure. Figure two on your handout, the characteristics of the demonized. Christians can experience those kinds of things at times. We also know that many of these have enjoyed freedom from such oppression when they and godly leaders with them engage in different types of warfare against the powers of darkness. Regardless of whether the demonic torment comes internally or is merely a demon attached to your arm so that it's flapping all around. We believe that when professing believers experience demonic oppression, including sinful bondage, abusive tendencies, sustained self-deprecating thoughts, or excessive anxieties or fears, Christians need to join arms with these fellow believers and seek deliverance, pursuing repentance from sin, pursuing holiness, praying for help, praying for freedom, and directly when necessary, engaging the powers of darkness. Point five. Christ gives authority and persevering grace to believers. Christ has given Christians authority to battle evil. He's given us grace to persevere through it and the promise of full deliverance from it. A believer's authority and the call to fight. Through His Spirit, Christ Christ gives Christians authority to overcome the powers of darkness. And by this authority, believers must fight the fight of faith and resist the devil until the Lord frees us completely on that future day from all of evil's influence. Paul urged Timothy, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. This good warfare is not simply against demonization. It's a fight for your holiness. It's a fight to properly give witness to the worth of Christ in this world, even in the midst of your suffering. That you, like Job, could say, I will fear God simply because of who He is and not because of what He gives or what He takes away. The Lord has granted Christians authority to fight and He's granted Christians grace to persevere. 
The one to whom God has given full universal dominion is ever-present with us. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Jesus said. Those in Christ are now raised and seated with Him, under whose feet God has subjected all principalities and all powers. Ephesians 1, Colossians 2. Just as Jesus was with His apostles to free the demonized and to empower discipleship and fruitfulness, so too He is with all Christians in power. He frees us to enjoy salvation past, present, and future. By grace, we have been saved through faith. The cross is foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And if we are justified by faith, he, we will be saved from the wrath of God. Past, present, future salvation. That's what Jesus died to bring. Freed from the penalty of sin, freed from the power of sin, and one day freed from the presence of sin. God equips us to fight the good fight of faith. He enables us to destroy enemy strongholds of all kinds through Jesus' name. This includes the right to liberate the demonized. But more often, it relates to resisting the devil by not embracing all that is in the world, but by treasuring Jesus above all things. Do you treasure Christ today. In treasuring Him, you are engaging in spiritual warfare because Satan wants to tempt you with lower level pleasures. Whenever you sin, you're saying, I'm satisfied with something lower than what God wants to give me. He wants to give you and me the greatest joy for the longest amount of time. In His presence is full joy forevermore. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. The authority that Jesus gives to Christians, Sam Storm says, is the right and power to act as if Jesus Himself were present with us. So different levels. Level one, Satan comes to frustrate and to bring lies and temptation. But then there are times where it's that elevated level two, demonization. In Christ, believers have already overcome the evil one. We have eternal security because He's promised that nothing can separate us from His love. Not angel, not power. Jesus has promised that He will ultimately preserve us from Satan's clutches. Nevertheless, we have seen that believers must be ready to confront frustration, confront lies and temptations, confront demonization, all of which are different schemes of the devil. Some elements of a proper Christian response are common, regardless of his attack strategy, whereas other elements of our fight of faith are different depending on what type of strategy he's using. So I want us to consider now, how is it that we fight and persevere? 
We're going to start generally by confronting every evil scheme. Then we're going to consider how does Scripture call us to fight when the devil frustrates? How does Scripture call us when the, de- when the devil lies and tempts? And then finally, how does Scripture call us to engage demonization? Confronting every demonic scheme. Against every scheme of the devil, we need to be a people who are awake and sober. We need to be a people who are strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might and who put on the full armor of God. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and be sober-minded. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We need to be a people who takes our stand on truth, resting fully in Christ's purchased righteousness. He is for us and not against us. The only sin that you can conquer today is forgiven sin, because you need a God who's 100% for you already to give you victory. You need to ground your life in Christ's perfect righteousness. Being ready to work gospel-wrought peace, believing in God's promises, thinking and acting in light of our salvation, offensively engaging by means of God's Word and wrapping every activity in prayer. That's Ephesians 6, 10-18. Specifically, following Christ's pattern in John 17 when He prays for us. We need to be a people who pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Trusting in the power of the Christ, the Son of the living God, and working for God's glory, we should engage the gates of hell confident that the devil's schemes cannot kill our joy. Confident that the devil's schemes cannot withstand the church's offensive. Matthew 16. Indeed, having the keys of the kingdom by which we know, understand, and proclaim the terms on the basis of which entrance into or exclusion from the kingdom of God is granted, what we bind on earth will have been bound already in heaven. What we loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, 19. All because Christ has already bound the devil. You and I don't need to work to bind the devil. It's not our job. It's already been done. We don't say, I bind you in the name of Jesus. It's already been done. He's already bound. It doesn't have to happen again. He is weaker than the one who is stronger. He's already been bound. By resisting or standing firm against the devil, we employ the authority and power God has given us to restrict his or their activities, to restrain his or their efforts, and to thwart his or their plans. So how do we confront frustration? When Satan obstructs, persecutes, or brings physical ailment, Scripture is absolutely clear that Christians should expect such frustrations as a necessary part of growth in grace. We should expect expect suffering. Just as Christ carried His cross, we should expect to bear our cross. Such tribulations will include persecution for the sake of Christ's name. 
Nevertheless, as Paul's own life shows, they will likely also include even broader forms of trial, including physical challenge. Just look at the list in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 and 5. Paul was convinced that such tribulations are inescapable for Christians. Through many trials, we will inherit the kingdom of God, Acts 14. All of this supplies a necessary context for our growth. I count it all joy, Paul says, when I face trials of many kinds, for the testing of my faith is shaping my character that I might display the worth of Christ, Romans 5. May we have an increasing understanding of a theology of suffering for the Christian. Aligning with the teaching in Job 1 and 2, Paul did not hesitate to view the trials that he experienced as harassments from the devil. Remember in the book of Job, the devil was there. But after Job's suffering, he said it was Yahweh who gave and Yahweh who took away. And immediately after that, God's inspired word declares, in all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. The church must stand firm amidst opposition, for this is part of the way the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3. Peter stressed that through our suffering, we identify with Christ. And the author of Hebrews emphasized that God's discipline nurtures holiness. It nurtures righteousness. Hebrews 12. So when faced with suffering, you know the, the, the verse in 1 Peter 5, resist the devil. It's in the context of suffering, of cares. When we read resist the devil in James 5, it's in a different context, in the context of sin. Both contexts we need to resist, frustration and lies and temptation. But here we're looking at frustration. When the cares of the world are heavy on us, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be sober, clear-headed. If your mind is filled with alcohol, you cannot think rightly. If your mind is filled with things of the world, you will not think rightly. But rather, if you let your mind be saturated, meditating day and night on this book, you will be ready to think rightly, sober-minded. And watchful, because you know the devil wants to bring you down. So be watchful, because he is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you. Seeking to devour you and me. So be ready. Be clear-headed. Grounded in the promises of God. Grounded in the sufficiency of Christ. Grounded in the confidence that he is greater. And he will carry you through. When encountering trials, our persevering trust is motivated both by Christ's example and by God's future promises. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. You're facing tension, frustration in your church, in the administration and leadership. Don't be quarrelsome. Be gentle. Kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correctly, 
correcting your opponents with gentleness. God may, the ultimate sovereign God, who controls whether we believe or whether we don't believe, who controls whether we repent or don't repent, that God, working through your gentle responses, may grant repentance. See that? God may grant repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I think this text is not talking about outside oppression. I think it's talking about oppression within a local body. And what that means is if you're the one standing against the Word of God and the Word that your pastor is giving you from the Word of God, if it's from the Word of God, you may be an agent of the devil in that instance. Oh, may God grant you repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. But if you're the one facing it, grounded in what is true, then respond with gentleness and plead with God to free them from the snare of the devil. We must turn from anxiety with prayer and thanksgiving. How do we respond to frustration when the cares of life hit us? Don't be anxious about everything, anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. What's that thanksgiving there for? We remember what God has done in our past. He has been faithful. We recall the specific instances. And it's a gift of God to help overcome the cares of our present life because we know that He's been faithful in the past. And that's used by God to do what? To help our hearts be guarded with His peace. Even in the midst of trial and frustration. We humble ourselves by casting our anxieties on Him, confident that He cares. So it is that we resist the devil, firm in our faith. Well, how do we respond when he confronts us with temptations and with lies? Carl Payne helpfully notes that we can identify a demonic voice in our head. A demonic word, a demonic idea, and a demonic impression that accuses us if The words we're hearing in our head violate Scripture and are not in alignment with Scripture. We know that's from the devil. If it is just so general, the guilt that you're feeling in your soul and you can't identify it with a specific sin, it's likely just the devil tormenting you. When you should say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and Jesus died to purchase my holiness and as I look at my life, I don't know where there's sin Put it back in the Satan's face because it's just a lie coming into your head. If it's not specific but so general that we're not even sure what we did wrong, it's a word from the devil. Or if that word is consistently demeaning with second person, you are weak, you're a loser, you're not valuable, you're not worth even living in this world. If you hear all those you statements, just know that's not God talking to you. You are an image of the, you are made in the image of the living God. And if you are in Jesus, you have been ransomed and you are valued. More than even a sparrow, a, a sparrow falls to the ground. How much more valuable are you? God knows your name. God knows the hairs on your head. Your people need to hear they are loved by God. 
And if all that you're hearing are words counter to that, it is the devil. He is lying to you. The devil is a liar. He solicits our surrender. He tempts us to sin. With respect to the twisting of thoughts and allurement to iniquity, what do we need to do? We need to think on whatever is honorable and just, pure and lovely, commendable, excellent. Let our minds be saturated with those things. We need to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We must determine to not love the world or anything in the world. Indeed, we must keep ourselves from idols. One key way that we can escape the corruption of the world is by saturating our mind in the promises of God. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God, he says. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Claim Isaiah 41.10 through Jesus. All the promises, yes, in Him. Consider the role of the promises of God. He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them, you and I may escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire and look more and more like the very nature of God Himself. We become holy by believing the promises of God over the promises of the devil. In evil days... We look carefully how we walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And what do we do? We're filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit comes to us through this book. We must give no ground to the devil, but must instead be renewed in the spirit of our minds and be imitators of God. Speaking truth and love, not retaining anger, doing honest work with our hands, speaking edifying and rightly placed words, never grieving the Holy Spirit, putting away all forms of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice, being kind to one another always, walking in love, fleeing sexual immorality, guarding against all forms of sin, Ephesians 4, 21 through 5, 5. We must guard ourselves from an evil, unbelieving heart, and we must exhort one another daily as long as it's called today, so that we will not give in to sin's deceitfulness. You cannot be a lone Christian. You need to be actively involved among a community of believers where they can help you battle your sin. We must submit ourselves to God Resisting the devil, believing in the promise that in such an instance, he will flee. We do this by drawing near to God, by cleansing our hands, purifying our hearts, being wretched and mournful, humbling ourselves before the Lord, confident that when we do, he will draw near to us and exalt us, James 4, 8 through 10. We should receive with thanksgiving all the gifts of God, 1 Timothy 4 yet engage in them with faith, love, and wisdom. So how about confronting demonization?
Scripture is clear. That apart from the power of God ultimately manifest in Christ, you and I have no authority to confront the devil. He will beat us every time unless we go through Jesus. Christ has already overcome the strong man, Mark 3. And demons know who Jesus is and they recognize his authority. Mark 1, Mark 5, Mark 9, Luke 9, Acts 19, the demons know who Jesus is. With this, Christ gives all who are in him authority to free those who are being tormented by evil spirits. Luke 10. All the 72 were granted that authority. And I believe it's in the text, and it's witnessed too in Acts 10, and throughout Acts, to give us witness that that authority has been granted to us. What Christ began to do and to teach, we read in the book of Luke. From his birth to his ascension. But what we see in the book of Acts is what he continues to do and teach today through his church. God's power makes all things possible for those who trust in Jesus. The Lord calls his church to test the spirits of teachers to see whether they are from God. Those that affirm Jesus' incarnation that He is indeed God-made flesh, if the Spirit testifies to such a thing, then they are from God. Whereas those that do not are the spirit of the Antichrist, 1 John 4, 1-3. God also gives certain saints the ability to distinguish spirits, the gift of distinguishing spirits in 1 Corinthians 12. A spiritual gift that seems evident in the ministries of Jesus he can distinguish spirits, John 1, John 2, Peter 2 in Acts 8, and Paul in Acts 13, 14, and 16. The gift is operative, and I believe it can still be operative today. And you need to pray that God might bring such people into your church, into your leadership, who have such a gift to distinguish spirits. When those in Christ are faced with cases of demonic torment, we should carefully and prayerfully assess the nature and the cause. We need to stand holy in the armor of God, Ephesians 6. And then we need to engage with a holistic approach that is saturated with prayer, that addresses sin, that reminds of God's promises, and takes authority that is in Christ to cast away all demonic spirits, charging them to stop holding sway, to depart and never to return. Brothers and sisters, if it was sin that opened the door for the person who walks down your aisle, who is raving mad, if it was sin that brought about their demonization and you do not address their sin in the process of casting out that demon, then know this, greater spirits will return to that person and they will be worse off than they were at the beginning. While some today assert that Christians need to identify, denounce, and engage territorial spirits that hold control over certain regions, certain geography, like rulers and authorities overseeing specific geographical regions like in Daniel 10, the prince of Persia. I don't see any evidence to suggest that God has called believers to confront territorial spirits. 
Because Jesus has already disarmed them all. There has been a freeing of all nations from the ultimate power of deception in such a time as this. And that's why missions has gone global. For Christ has already overcome such powers. Nevertheless, when the devil and his minions torment individuals, Christ has given us authority and he does call us to extend his ministry of deliverance. An author, Clinton Arnold, very well-renowned New Testament scholar, proposes the following helpful pattern for dealing with demonic influence. You encounter demonization, here's the two things he sees operative in Scripture. First, before you engage, you draw near to God, knowing that He will, in turn, draw near to you. And then second, you resist the devil and his demons, believing that he must flee. Sounds basic. What does it mean to resist? There's nine convictions and actions. I list them on your handout. Number one, you give attention to the area that has made you or another susceptible. How did the devil gain turf? Whether one has intentionally invited demonic presence, whether one bears residual influence from the past, whether one unintentionally invited their presence simply by retaining anger, holding bitterness. You weren't thinking, I'm opening the door for Satan, but that's exactly what you were doing. Or whether one is experiencing simply special attacks like Paul did. Look and assess, what is it that made me susceptible? For Paul, it was the potential that he could become proud. Number two, determine to resist in the power that God supplies in Christ. Number three, know your resources in Christ. All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth is His, and He is for all those who are in Him. Next, deal with their ground for attack, renouncing and decisively turning away from ungodly involvements in sin. As you confront a demonized person, you must address their sin issue. If it's there. You need to renounce any connections to ungodly lifestyle, ungodly deeds, ungodly affiliations. For some of you in this room, it may be pornography. You allow yourself to look at it and you wonder why your soul is dry. And if you let it continue, the oppression you experience may indeed rise to a much higher level. Identify the sin. Confront it. What is it that caused this issue? It might be affiliations in family. Your grandfather was a witch doctor. You grew up in a context where that was the influence that you knew. And demons continue to influence and come against you. Recognize the connection and confront it. Next, 
If necessary, deal directly and firmly with the demonic spirit. I'll note what that looked like in Jesus' life in just a second. When Jesus is not simply praying to God to do something, but when he looks that demon in the eye and he names it by name and causes it to flee. That's not it. To engage in demonization, you must nurture a, a lifestyle that recognizes I need the body of Christ around me. So be meaningfully attached to the body of Christ. It will guard you from the evil one. Pray and solicit prayer support. And finally, expect Christ to give victory. So with respect to engaging directly with demonic spirits, when Satan twisted Scripture and when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, the Lord confronted the evil one with Scripture. It's the authority of God that causes the demons to flee. Not your words. Bring Scripture to bear. And the devil trembles at God's word. Jesus commanded, be gone. Similarly, when annoyed by a spirit that was distracting his work from the gospel, after days of annoyance, Paul simply said to the demon, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Simple command. Not in his power, but in the name of the resurrected Son of God who conquered death and conquered the devil. Elsewhere, we can see a general pattern of how Jesus delivered people who were demonized. But not all of these elements are always present in the biblical text. But this is what we read. Here was Jesus' pattern. He exposed, he engaged, and he expelled. So what do we see? Jesus discerned the nature and extent of the demonic activity. Next, Jesus secured the name of the demon. What is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. He then restricted its or their activity. I do not permit you to speak. I do not permit you to throw this individual down on the ground and call, cause convulsions. In the authority of Jesus, you do not have such freedom. Sometimes Jesus, because it was not time for, his, for the world to know that He was God, come in the flesh, ready to be crucified in behalf of the many, to save sinners who believe through his life, death, and resurrection because it wasn't time yet to make all that known. He said, be quiet and don't let others know that I am the Christ. But then finally, he engaged in order to expel. And Jesus commanded the demons to depart and to never return. This rebuke was often immediately followed by the demonized person crying out, convulsing, and then lying as if dead. And then Jesus would go up and grab his hand, and he was alive. While the New Testament examples of deliverance often include these three stages, Jesus does, does note that some encounters will require sustained prayer. 
so that the messenger of God's deliverance, this is in order to work up more faith in my soul or to finally I've done enough praying so that God can now act. Rather, what you and I need as messengers of deliverance is humility. And the level to which we pray is the level to which we are dependent on God. And so we need to pray often to, so that our soul is more in right relationship with the living God. So that we recognize that it is His power and not mine. It's His name and not mine. It's about His fame and not mine. God help me. And so we need to pray, pray, pray. So that Christ might get the glory. We know that unresolved, unrepentant sin supplies a place for the devil to work. And commonly it is such unaddressed sins which means all sins for those who are not in Jesus, that supply the very point or ground of entry for demonic powers. While demons are liars, Christ's authority can compel demons to speak the truth. Mark 1, Mark 5. Though they resist, they cannot ultimately withstand an offensive attack from the power of Christ. But instead, they must submit to and heed Christ's ambassadors. For we, where His people are, Christ is present. The Christian's hope. Jesus gave Himself up for us to deliver us from the present evil age. Galatians 1. Today, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Christ. Hebrews 2. But all things are indeed under His control. And after destroying every rule and every authority under His feet, including death, He will then deliver the kingdom of God to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15. What do we read? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus Himself likewise partook of the same things. To what end? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and that he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's why Jesus came. God has already disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through Christ. Colossians 2. Jesus has already abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1. Nevertheless, we await the day when death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. The day when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, when death shall reign no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will worship before Him. Christ is advancing His kingdom through His church. It's my last point but I'm going to jump over it mostly. Let me read this, just due to time. Christ is advancing His kingdom through His church. So it is that He declares, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What I want to draw attention to the, is to this. The armor that you and I wear, before it is our armor, it is Christ's armor. 
in Isaiah, when he foresees the coming of the Messiah, he speaks of the reigning servant who is an anointed conqueror who has armor, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. Before it is ever our armor, it is Jesus's. Consider, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness shall be the belt of his loins. You and I have armor only because we are in him. And if you try to face any power of darkness apart from Christ, you have no armor on. God made Jesus' mouth like a sharp two-edged sword. And now we carry that word with us in our battle. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good peace. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's what we have because we are now the emissaries of Christ himself. Isaiah 59, 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. All of those texts, Isaiah is talking about the Messiah and not the church. But then Paul says, you, Christians, put on the armor of God. That is, get into Jesus through prayer, through his word, and you will be equipped, men and women, to stand against the schemes of the devil. Second of all, not only is the Messiah's armor ours, we also know that the Messiah's mission becomes ours. In Isaiah, it is the messianic servant who has beautiful feet. How the beautiful on the mountain are the feet of him, singular, who brings good news, announcing peace, proclaiming words of happiness. But then Paul, in Christ, recognizing that through the church, Jesus is today carrying out his missional advance, overcoming the powers of darkness. Paul takes that singular text focused on the mission of the servant in Isaiah 52, the good news, gospel-bringing servant. And he says... The Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you, Paul and Barnabas, not just the apostle, but the members associated with him. All of you, I have commanded you to bring light. Sorry, I I read the wrong text. I went to second one. Here, this is the one. Nope. Sorry. How beautiful in the mountains are the feet of him. Here's the second text. How are they to preach? Unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those. What was true of the Messiah becomes the mission of the church. Similarly, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Israel is a person. Notice the mission of Israel. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. You are my servant Israel and your mission is to save Israel. How can Israel save Israel? That's what what Isaiah says. It's because the first Israel is a person whom we know of as Jesus. He represents the people in himself, and he has a mission to save ethnic Israelites, but not only them. It's too light a thing that you would only save them. I will make you a light 
to the nations, that it might reach all the way to Kansas City, Missouri, and right into Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. All nations, some from every people and tongue and tribe and nation. That is the heart of God. And the mission of the Messiah becomes the mission of the church. The kingdom is advancing through us, but only by the power of the Spirit of Christ. So I conclude. This study has argued for the following six affirmations. God is the supreme ruler and orchestrator of all things supernatural, natural, and moral. Number two, God is stronger than the evil one, has decisively defeated him through Christ, and will defeat him entirely. Christ frees believers. Number three, he flees, frees believers from enslavement to the devil and grants them both a new identity as sons and full eternal security in him. Number four, the evil one, the devil, works evil against both believers and non-believers alike. Number five, Christ has given Christians authority to battle evil, grace to persevere through it, and the promise of full deliverance from it. And finally, Christ is advancing His kingdom through His church. All believers experience levels of demonic oppression or torment, whether due to special attacks, to intentionally inviting the demonic presence, to unintentionally inviting the demonic presence, or through residual influence from the past. Furthermore, in this life, all those in Christ at times fail to resist the devil's lies and the devil's schemes. Whether by giving in to anxiety, nurturing fear, having empty devotional times, withdrawing from biblical community, sustaining anger or bitterness, or engaging in any other sin, we open our lives up to the devil's work, forgetting that the temple of God and idolatry should not mix. In turn, demonic forces are freed to stir up unhealthy passions in the flesh to move Christians to live false identities that resemble their old man. Thus, whether due to unintentional or intentional activity, we as believers must be awake. We must be sober, hoping in our coming salvation, standing firm in the full armor of God, resisting the devil and trusting fully in Christ's power and Christ's faithfulness. The reason Christ presently sits, sorry, the risen Christ presently sits at the right hand of the Father. He reigns above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion in both this age and in the age to come. In Him, God has already disarmed the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms. He has already put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. Jesus will destroy all evil powers completely at the end. Today, every person in Christ is, by God's power, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day, 1 Peter 1.5. Yet, knowing that His end is close, Revelation 12, Satan and his demonic forces are deceiving 
They are scheming, frustrating through obstruction and persecution or false trial. They are lying and tempting. And among the minority, they are tormenting from within and from without at a very elevated scale. Standing in the authority and the victory of Christ, when Christians experience Satan's harassments through suffering of all sorts, God calls us to be sober-minded, to be watchful, to resist Him firm in our faith, confident that in due course Christ will overcome, restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing us. When Satan lies to our minds or seeks to awaken evil desire within God charges those in Christ to submit ourselves to God, to resist the devil, and He promises in such a moment He will flee. When believers encounter those who are under extreme demonic influence, we should prayerfully help them resist the devil by proclaiming the gospel and, as necessary, by confronting and casting away the evil power in faith and in the authority of Jesus. Finally, We must press ahead through bold proclamation, working to see those living in darkness reconciled to the God of light. We must work to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of Christ's name. In all things, Christ in us must be the fuel to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, lest we shipwreck our faith. 1 Timothy 1. Jesus Christ is stronger. He who is greater, He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. His His kingdom's advance is certain, and He will soon save completely the multi-ethnic bride that He died to save that He rose to secure, and that He now reigns over to bring us home. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more writings, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring the God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.